And welcome to Emmanuel. It's great to see you all. Turn to Matthew um, chapter 8, verse 18 and following, in your bulletins or Bibles. We're in a series called Take Heart, the words of Jesus to the wounded and weary. One way to understand the spiritual life is the theme of a pilgrimage. A pilgrimage is a journey out of the familiar to a place where you can encounter God. Usually on a pilgrimage, there's danger and discomfort in the journey, but there's also wonder and beauty and an expansion of the soul that can't happen at home. A pilgrimage can be a literal trip that you take to the Holy Land where Jesus lived and died and rose again, or to hike the Camino Trail and Spain, or even just the simple act of leaving your home and going to church. Um, A pilgrimage can also be a, a metaphor for the Christian life. Think of the classic tales such as Pilgrim's Progress, where the main character, Christian, um, he journeys from his home in the city of destruction to the celestial city, which is on the top of Mount Zion. Or what about the allegory, hinds feet on hind places, hinds feet on high places, where a young crippled girl named Much Afraid is guided by her two companions, sorrow and suffering. They lead her out of her oppressive home in the valley, where she is abused, up to the mountain height of the Good Shepherd. These stories help us see that the spiritual life is a journey from a narrow, unbelieving, constricted life to one of freedom and joy and union with God and transformation. Here's what one Christian leader says about pilgrimages. He says, to go on a pilgrim." Pilgrimage is not simply to visit a place to admire its treasures for nature, art, or history. To go on pilgrimage really means to step out of ourselves in order to encounter God where he has revealed himself, where his grace has shone with particular splendor and produced rich fruits of conversion and holiness among those who believe. Are you ready for a spiritual pilgrimage? After a year of, after two years of quarantine, and crisis, are you ready to find yourself traveling far from the familiar? And are you willing to pay the price of an adventure where you can meet God? To all would-be pilgrims, Jesus Christ offers an invitation. Follow me. Follow me. Jesus Christ is the ultimate guide from life as we know it to the city of God. And he says, follow me. Jesus is leading a group of people on a pilgrimage that will change their lives forever. And he's still speaking that invitation, that, that words, those words, follow me, to every person here, just like he did when he lived on this earth. You are invited to come with him on this pilgrimage. I'm invited to come with him on this pilgrimage. This morning, we're looking at three would-be pilgrims. They wanted to follow Jesus on his pilgrimage but they had to deal with some hang-ups first. These pilgrims each have a unique barrier, a problem that kept them from taking Jesus up on his offer. And I wonder if at least one of them would be relatable for you. Um, Matthew 8.18 Matthew 8, um, shows us first a pilgrim 
who needs control. A pilgrim who needs control. Verse 18 of Matthew 8 says this. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. Verse 19, and a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Have you ever traveled with someone who needs to control their environment a little too much? You know, the temperature needs to be at a certain level in the car. Um, or the, the food needs to have a certain freshness or temperature. Or they're not going to enjoy the trip. And you're not going to enjoy the trip either. Or what about like the seat? It's got to go back to a certain angle. If it doesn't go back to a certain angle, no one's happy. Um, or you have to have all the right books with you. I have to have all the right books with me or I'm not going to enjoy this trip. But the Wi-Fi needs to stop cutting out, okay? The Wi-Fi maybe, the bane of your existence, or the pillow can't be too lumpy, right? It's like, well, I guess, why don't you just stay at home, right? If everything has to be just so. Um, I have been that person, I confess. Maybe you've been that person. But if you control all of the conditions, you're not on a pilgrimage anymore. Here we see a man who is accustomed to controlling his spiritual conditions. He's a scribe who is always selected. He has selected teachers to follow around. Um, He says, teacher, rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. Notice that he's coming up to Jesus with the ask. I'm going to go ahead and select you right now to follow you around. In his day, people could select teachers like you or I would select a restaurant or subscribe to a podcast or even choose a church. I like what they're offering here. I'm going to go ahead and select it. And then when something better comes along or it stops being as good, then I can unselect it. I can unfollow it. Um, He could follow Jesus. Jesus is really in a good spot right now in his ministry from an earthly perspective. Crowds are following him. He's walking around in a pretty safe Jewish area. And so this scribe says, oh, sure, I'll follow this rabbi. He has some interesting things to say. Um, Yet, according to verse 18, Jesus is heading for the other side. He's getting ready to go from the safe Jewish area to a non-safe area called the Decapolis. And in this area, there was a man who had 5,000 demons in him. There was a lot of pigs around. It's uh, not really a kind of a normal, comfortable place for a good Jewish scribe to follow Jesus around. Um, It's going to be higher stakes. This pilgrimage is not going to be safe. It's going to be higher stakes. It's going to be unfamiliar. And this rabbi, or sorry, this scribe is not going to be able to have the kind of control over his spiritual conditions that he is accustomed to. And so Jesus um, uh, clarifies for him When this scribe says, I want to go with you, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus clarifies expectations before making the transition with this scribe to letting him follow him. He says, you're not going to be in control of this trip. Verse 20, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you sure, Mr. Scribe? Are you sure you want to come with me? because I'm not even sure where I'm going to be sleeping tonight. And Jesus slept in all kinds of places on his pilgrimage. Um, He slept on a boat when it was in the middle of a storm. He slept in a friend's house. 
He slept in open air. And all that maybe sounds romantic until you realize that the open air means, in his culture, danger from night bandits. Some nights, Jesus didn't even sleep at all. He was praying all all night like he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I don't believe that Jesus is rejecting this scribe. He loves this scribe. I do believe that he's pushing back a little bit and challenging him. Are you sure you want to come with the Son of Man? Are you willing to become more vulnerable than a fox? Are you willing to become more vulnerable than a bird? The sacrifices of this trip are high, but the rewards are beyond measure. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. What does he mean by this, the Son of Man? Um, On the one hand, it's like a humble, everyday human term. He's a regular guy who experiences a human life. The Son of Man needs sleep, but he has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man is poor, humble, sometimes opposed. The Son of Man will be wounded. He'll die with criminals. He'll be buried with the wicked. He lives a very, very humble life. And when you come with him on his pilgrimage, you will experience a son of man pilgrimage. You're going to sometimes not be in control of your journey. Sometimes you're not going to know where you're going to sleep. People might misunderstand you. People might reject you. You might be hungry. On the other hand, the term son of man has glorious implications. Because after this son of man dies, he will be raised to life. And according to the prophet Daniel, he will come on the clouds of glory along with all of his people, and he will judge the nations, every single human being who's ever lived. And he will select from among the nations people to join his new city, his new kingdom. And if you are there on that day, and all of us will be, it will be so helpful if the Son of Man has already been camping out with you. If you've already laid your head next to his head where there's no pillows, If you've already been uh, mistreated, if you've already gone on the adventure where you don't have control, you have some suffering, you have some losses, it will be so helpful because he'll be able to look at you and say, I know you, join my kingdom. I know you, be resurrected. I know you, you have been on the pilgrimage with me. You have had nowhere to lay your head. Whatever it is that Jesus has asked of us on the other end of us following him. We will want to be known by the Son of Man on that glorious day. So he says to each person here, follow me. Out of a life of carefully curated experiences, follow me. Follow me out of your need for control. Follow me to a pilgrimage beyond your wildest dreams filled with perils and wonders, death and resurrection, pushing back hell and injustice and inheriting heaven in the kingdom. The Son of Man says to each one here, follow me. Come share in my sufferings. Learn my way of giving up comforts for the sake of love. Come share in my glory, he invites us, as we trust the Father to raise up the humble in due time. Follow me. This is an invitation not just to a journey, but to a relationship with the Son of Man. We can't have control, but we can have companionship with him. And in the end, that's going to be so much better than having control. Did this scribe follow Jesus? Matthew doesn't tell us, but it leaves us, it leaves it open-ended. And the more important question is, will we follow Jesus? Will I follow Jesus? 
He doesn't promise control, but he does offer communion. Um, So what about the second pilgrim? The first one needed control. The second pilgrim had some unholy attachments. The second pilgrim had some unholy attachments. Um, He had an obligation back home that keeps him from the journey. Verse 21 says this, another of the disciples said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now on its face, this short exchange between Jesus and this man seems, um, it makes Jesus seem just rude, doesn't it? He just sounds like a jerk. Um, To our ears, it sounds like one of Jesus's own disciples lost his father and is asking for permission to go to the funeral. And instead of granting the request, it sounds like Jesus is saying, hey, let your dead father be buried by other dead people. And that would have been quite unbecoming of Jesus to say that to a grieving man. Bible scholar Kenneth Bailey helps us understand better the social setting of this man um, that helps us read this in a more accurate way culturally. In this man's culture, family loyalty was everything. The customs of the day put family obligations at the very, very top of any other obligation in your entire life. So that meant that adult children were expected to care for their aging parents until they passed. To leave your parents before that would be unthinkable and shameful. Everyone was expected to do it. So when this man says, Lord, let me first go uh, bury my father, then I'll follow you. In effect, he's saying, Lord, I want to fulfill my societal family obligations to care for my father until he dies. Once that happened, maybe that could be weeks, months, years later, then I'll follow you. Jesus is going to push this man as well. He's going to challenge his expectations. He's going to challenge his commitments. He's going to challenge the attachments that he has. He is willing to call this man's allegiances into question when he says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What's Jesus saying? Sir, you have an unholy attachment to your customs. If you follow me, I come first. The kingdom of God comes first, and your family comes second. You are free, my friend, to die to that attachment. You are free to die to all of the demands that your culture and your family place upon you. You are free to die to the approval of your father and your community. You are free, if it comes to that, to be hated and despised as a result. Many of us will come to a fork in the road where we realize that we can either please our earthly parents and fulfill the dreams and plans that dad or mom had for our life, or we can please our heavenly father and live out the plans that he has for our life. And this can be an extremely painful, gut-wrenching choice, some more than others. But for those who say yes to Jesus and yes to his kingdom and yes to his plans, there are zero regrets in the end. Let the dead bury their own dead is one way of saying, you and I belong to a dying world. And it is foolish to attach to it too strongly. Have you ever tried holding sand in your fingers? Have you ever tried picking up sand and shaping it with your fingers? And you just notice how the sand finds its way in between the gaps of your fingers? 
That's what this dying world is like. You try picking it up and shaping it and keeping it, and it slips through our fingers, and there's a deadness to it. The world is dying, and we are dying. Everything we love, even our highest ideals, cannot be held for long, right? Home. What is home? You can't hold home. Home is a dying concept and reality. Family, stability, safety, like loyalty, freedom, health, wellness, self-expression, money, like reputation. We try holding it together. We put all of our blood, sweat, and tears and strength to shape it into something that will last. Like, I can do this. But the thing is that our hands are dying too. And we won't always have blood, sweat, tears, and strength to hold that sandcastle together. It's going to slip through our fingers because our fingers are also dust and sand and dying. In his classic book, The Imitation of Christ, medieval uh, thinker and spiritual writer Thomas Akempis names how foolish it is to hold on to this world. He says, vanity, therefore it is, to seek after perishing riches and to trust in them. Vanity also it is to hunt after honors and to climb to a high degree. Vanity it is to follow the desires of the flesh and to long after that, for which you have must afterwards suffer grievous punishment. Vanity it is to wish to live long and to be careless to live well. Vanity it is to mind only this present life and not to foresee those things which are to come. Vanity it is to set your love on that which quickly passes away and not hasten where everlasting joy abides. Jesus calls us on a pilgrimage where we die to this dying world. We die to its demands on our allegiance. We die to the attachments we have with dying realities, and we follow him into his kingdom of life where we will be together with him forever. His kingdom will never die. And the everlasting joy that we seek in passing things, we will finally find on Mount Zion in the city of our God. How foolish we are, how foolish we are to hope in this world Pleasures are fleeting. Security is fragile. Suffering is inevitable. Loss is unstoppable. Reputation is a vapor. Power, it's unwieldy. But how wise we would be to follow Jesus, to hear his call, follow me, take his hand, go on the pilgrimage, and freely let go of the dying world, to freely let go in all the ways it tries to attach itself to us, to actually face directly into the cross directly into death, say, yes, Lord, I'll actually follow you into the cross. I'll let go on all the things that I'm holding on to so that I can hold on to the rugged splinters of the rugged, rugged cross because it's no longer a cross when Jesus leads us through it. It's the way into life itself, the way into everlasting joy. It's the shining face of our Lord. Does this man, have the courage to follow Jesus, to face the scorn that it will heap upon him, to face the disappointment of his own father. We don't know. We don't know. 
What about us? Are we willing? Consider how reversed our situation is from this man. Our culture says family and loyalty are everything. And you and I go, yeah, you know, that's not right. But our culture says self-expression and authenticity are everything. Imagine someone in the prime of their career saying to you, I'm leaving my job, which pays well and has great prestige, to care for my aging parents full time. Would we think, wow, why are you doing that? Can't you get help? Or imagine an artist who has finally made it. All the doors are open to them. After years of scraping by on student loans and grad school and nights and weekends and ramen noodles, and, and finally they've made it. But they say, you know what, I'm leaving it all behind because I feel called by Jesus to adopt a special needs child. Following Jesus on this pilgrimage most times is not an invitation to a jet-set life. Jesus himself didn't go very far in his life. Jesus often takes us on the adventure of loving people who actually slow us down. Practically speaking, we might be traveling less, but we might be in the Lord traveling more because we are loving people who limit us. And by limiting us, they open us up to the kingdom of God. Lord, I'll follow you, but first, let me have an amazing life. Follow me, Jesus says, and die to the illusion of an amazing life. What will it take for us to leave the land we know and follow Jesus to the land he will show us? What will it take for us to go on our own pilgrimage? One pilgrim needs to let go of control. The other one needs to let go of an attachment that is unholy and clings too close to his heart and his allegiances. How about the final pilgrim? The final pilgrim we might call the failure. <laughs> the failure. This third pilgrim may have been tempted to sabotage the invitation from Jesus because he had become a disgrace to everyone around him. He was a hated man. And chapter 9, uh, verse, verse 9, tells us who this man was. Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. A picture a small booth near the water's edge. Around it is a kind of bustle of activity, fishermen coming and going, the noise of the waterfowl, the smell of the day's catch. Now, seated inside this squatty booth, is a man that everyone loves to hate. He's one of their own, yet he's chosen to collect taxes on behalf of the oppressive Roman occupiers, and he's taking people's money. This week I was reading some firsthand testimonies of what it's like to write parking tickets for a living. One uh, person spoke of getting yelled at basically every few minutes. Another said this, people do not last long on this job. A lot quit after a month because they cannot take the social consequences. During the interview, they just asked if I had dealt with angry customers before. There was no warning, though. I wasn't aware of the hatred. After a while, you learn you cannot take the hate personally for the sake of your mental health. Now, that's just people who write parking tickets for a living. What if you're out there collecting taxes? 
Matthew, the tax collector, what a job he has. You're like a sitting duck in that booth. You collect money from your own tribe and kin. People shoot daggers at you with their eyes. They call you a traitor. They keep you out of the temple. Yet Jesus walks right up to this tax collection booth. And you can even picture him like standing in a queue, standing in a line. There's Matthew up there. Jesus can hear all the abuse he's taking. And, you know, slowly shuffling up closer and closer to Matthew. Everyone is just like, everyone hates him. Jesus gets up to Matthew and looks at him with eyes of love. And he says to him two words, follow me, follow me, Matthew. Matthew must have known about him. And Jesus knew Matthew knew about him. Come on, Matthew, I'm not keeping you out. I want you in. I want you with me. Son of man wants you with me. You're included, Matthew. You're invited, Matthew. You can leave behind this booth, let the waters wash it away. You can be forgiven. You can forgive, Matthew. When Jesus invites us to take a pilgrimage with him, he intends to relieve the burden of our guilt and shame. In fact, many do take a pilgrimage after a personal devastating failure. Did you know that? That's the, why a lot of people go to the Holy Land, why people hike the Camino. They're, they have failed so, so miserably that they have to go and find the forgiveness that their soul is seeking. Uh, Ronald Joffe's 1986 award-winning film, The Mission, tells the story of a slave trader named Rodrigo Mendoza. Rodrigo Mendoza makes his living kidnapping members of a native tribe in Argentina and Paraguay and traffics them to nearby plantations. He invades villages, one village in particular, wearing armor and bearing a sword with which he rips their beloved sons from their community and sells them for a profit. Imagine being part of that village. Colonizer comes in, rips community members from your family out and sells them into slavery. Now, through a series of tragedies, Mendoza eventually hit rock bottom. He's distraught and he's in prison. And a priest who works with those same villagers comes to visit him in prison and talks with Mendoza about the state of his soul. And in that conversation, he invites Mendoza to take a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage of forgiveness where he will carry a bundle containing his sword and his armor, not wearing it anymore, but it's going to be a bundle that he will carry up mountains and down into valleys and through rivers. He will carry it along with the, the team of religious workers, and he will come all the way to the village, not wearing the armor, but bearing it as a burden. And who knows what would happen next? Mendoza eventually, after a long and arduous pilgrimage, collapses before all of the villagers. He's just collapsed, and he's caked in mud. He's a distraught, humiliated, broken-down man. He has absolutely nothing to offer them except his own vulnerability. And the village is filled with rage. They've got their spears. They've got their knives. They're shouting. They're angry. Someone's got a dagger. They're holding it close to Mendoza's throat. 
And then there's this, this moment where something shifts and you don't even know what's happening, but instead of cutting his throat, they cut his rope and the burden of his oppression and their oppression slips the knot, tumbles down into the river gorge and is carried away and washed away forever. And Mendoza opens his mouth, he's on all fours and he just weeps. He just weeps like no man has ever wept before because he is finally a forgiven man. He is finally a pardoned man. The villagers come around him laughing, laughing with joy, laughing at this man who's on all fours, laughing with grace. And he's welcomed into their midst. He actually joins their community. To journey with Jesus is to travel light. That's what grace means. Whatever we've done wrongly, whatever we failed to do rightly, that was ultimately an offense against Jesus. So he cuts the rope. He forgives our sin. And the bundle of our iniquity tumbles down, 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 down to the river that washes it away. Along with this dying world. Now, he's able to do this because of his own pilgrimage. He took the pilgrimage to the cross. And it really was a pilgrimage where he took on burdens rather than release the burdens. The burdens of the sins of every man, woman, and child who ever lived. Out of his love and out of his grace. That gives him the authority to cut the rope. To forgive and release sins. To give us the power to forgive and release the sins of others done against us. We might take a pilgrimage to seek forgiveness. That's only because he took the pilgrimage to offer forgiveness. The kind of savior he is, and that's the kind of invitation he gives. When he says to Matthew and to us, follow me, he's saying, I can forgive you. Now, of all the three pilgrims, isn't it interesting that this is the one who said yes? It says, and he rose and followed him. Don't forget, this is the gospel according to Matthew. He's telling his own story. What story are you going to tell with your life? Because the invitation is for you too. I don't know what perils and wonders you will experience on your pilgrimage with Jesus. I don't know what it will cost you. I don't, or how hard or wonderful it will be. All I can say is that it's worth it. And that Jesus is calling you. He is saying to you, follow me. And that when you respond like Matthew, when you don't hesitate, you will never regret it in this life or the next. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.